All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have Joe Rust and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 35th year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I would typically turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. But since Jeff is on vacation for this week, I will take over that task. So looking in the week just past, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up two-tenths of one percent. The S&P 500 was up eight-tenths of 1%, and the NASDAQ rounded out the week up 1.2%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 12.8%. The S&P 500, helped a lot by those Magnificent Seven, is up 23.8%. And the NASDAQ, year-to-date, is up 43.2%. So just typical years again for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, wouldn't you say, Joe? Just typical. Yeah, just typical. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. Way off from my prediction, but I predict about 8% every year. So eventually I'm going to get it right. That's the way that I... For our long-term listeners, maybe some people remember her not, Abby Joseph Cohen. I know Dad, when he you know used to be on the show every year when we would do our predictions, he would always give the Abby Joseph Cohen. She was one of the big, well-known analysts at Goldman Sachs, and she gave the pretty much the same prediction every single year, S&P <laughs> to be up between 8 and 10%. So. Yes. <laughs> so so you're you're following the Abby Joseph Cohen rule of uh, between eight and ten percent. Well, and we said this on last weekend's show, Joe. I was the most bullish predicting that the S and P would be up sixteen percent by the end of the year. Now, obviously it's blown past our predictions, but I don't think any of us anticipated to have seven stocks be such a huge driver that revolved primarily around artificial intelligence and the technology space that has done so much driving. But as we've talked on past shows here recently, we're starting to see market participation start to spread out. And there's still a lot of great values in industries, you know, healthcare being one of them. I mean, we're big proponents of healthcare, the graying of America. And healthcare, you know, hasn't had a lot of participation unless you're talking about like an Eli Lilly companies that focus on the weight loss drug 
the GPL1s, I believe is what they're called, uh, that's helping everyone lose weight. So other than that, you know, healthcare is an area that hasn't had a lot of participation this year. Um, and, you know, we've had such a just tech-driven or really seven, you know, stocks driving the market this year. We want to see that breadth really spread out going into next year. Well, if you look at the equally weighted S&P, and we always talk about that because when you're doing a review with a client or you're looking at their portfolio, you have to kind of remind them of, of what you just talked about. You know, you look at the S&P, it's a market-weighted index, and a lot of that run is market the cap. Market. market cap, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long week, but market cap weighted. Then you look at the equally weighted S&Ps up 12.91%. And one of the things Thursday, that I yeah. – To Thursday, and, and – you look at Wednesday, it's kind of a rough day. Uh, and we're going into Christmas, and, of course, I'm having flashbacks, even though the, the Fed did not do what it did in 2018. And I'm sitting there, please, please, let's have a solid close at least this uh, this Christmas week. And we got a little bit of a rally towards the end of the week to essentially, let's just call it a draw. The market was flat. I'll take that. I'll take that any day of the week. Well, I mean, the Dow was pretty much flat, but for the S&P up, you know, almost a percent and, yeah. and the NASDAQ being up over a percent. And what you're talking about on Wednesday really happened with about an hour and a half to go. And it just came out of nowhere. Now, I personally thought that it was a reaction to the poor 20-year bond auction. Uh, and what I mean by poor is that 13% of the 20-year Treasury bond auction had to be taken on, that inventory had to be taken on by dealers, and it wasn't picked up by individual investors, and so it had a very low score. And it seems like over the past eight weeks or so, the market has become more in tune with how these Treasury auctions are received by investors and if they score very poorly, it's a sign that the federal government is going to have to be offering up higher interest rates in order to unload this government debt in investors' hands. And so I thought that had something to do with it. And I read an article on Friday where there's still a big question mark what caused such a big reversal in the markets on Wednesday with that hour and a half to go. And some folks are kind of laying it at the feet of the what are called zero DTE options, which have become extremely popular with younger investors, with more gamblers of Wall Street. In fact, some of these zero DTE option traders call them lottery tickets. Um, because they're very short-dated options, either a call option or a put option that you can buy, and they can also be settled in cash. And so it's really been – it's almost kind of becoming the new meme stock for younger investors, and what happened on Wednesday is a bunch of options expired, and we saw a lot of put buying. Um, In fact, volume – was I would say the volume on Wednesday was some of the highest of the year. In fact, 105% above the daily moving average. And so some folks are saying it was the expiration and then the buying of a high level of zero DTE put options. Well, and you have a pretty so, good run like we've had also. You're going to have a little bit of a sell-off. It's also natural. Eventually, you're going to have a 1% down day. But... 
Um, well, we, we, we are overbought. I mean, there's from a technical standpoint, we are overbought. But when you're in a bull market, the market can be overbought for an extended period of time. Just because the market has been overbought for maybe a week or two doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see a 3 to 5% correction just because of that fact. And so, as you were saying, Joe, you know, we saw what happened on Wednesday, but the market recovered from it and wound up still having a positive week with four trading days left in 2023. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're not going to be seeing a lump of coal from Santa Claus in our stocking to end out 2023. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation, or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's MoneyWise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from this past week. And as we went to break, talking about Wednesday, which saw a very big reversal uh, and the buying in the market with about an hour and a half to go. And a lot of folks on Wall Street kind of scratching their heads, trying to figure out, you know, was this was on Wednesday, you know, at the after the close, Joe, they were like, well, is this the end of the rally? You know, are we not is the Santa Claus rally over? Have we already taken gains from 2024 and have already got them here in 2023? Uh, so there was just a lot of question marks, and as I was talking in the last segment, I read an article on Friday from Market Watch talking about zero DTE options, not to get too deep in the technical weeds, but they're very short-dated options that have become very popular with fast money artists, quick buck artists, and particularly younger uh, investors. And, you know, I can tell you options are extremely dangerous because with options, your downside isn't just zero. Your downside is zero plus. So you can not only lose all your money, but wind up owing money. So we don't utilize, you know, options here at Davidson Capital Management individually. There are some exchange traded funds that we have utilized in the past. One in particular in 2022 was a, was a, um, Exchange traded fund that shorted the seven to ten year treasury, which made us and all of our clients a lot, a lot of money um, for 2022, helped us actually produce a positive bond number. But, you know, we would say these are definitely things for just the average investor not to get involved in because um, they can be very, very dangerous. Well, and, and so they're also very time consuming, too. If you're a home gamer, yeah. you can't just sit there. You have to watch it daily. I mean, that's if you're running a. Anyway, almost like hourly. <laughs> right. Back, way, way back in the day when Davidson Capital Management had a hedge fund, I would imagine you guys had to pay attention to that all the time, you know, because you're using strategies when you're using options and that type of that thing. Was before, so, that was before I joined the firm. So that was when yeah. it was just Dad, Dad and Jeff. But back that was some time back. Yeah, yeah back, back so. in the day. So now we sit. We've got four full trading days to go for 2020, for 2023. 
Um, you know, definitely had a very nice Santa Claus rally. We still, the S&P still has not gotten back to its all-time high, which the intraday high, which was the first trading day of 2022 of 48.18, so we still haven't gotten back there. NASDAQ still has quite a ways to go. And, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has already hit all-time highs, you know, this month already. Now, uh, obviously, it took a hit uh, on Friday due to the very poor earnings of Nike, which is a component of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So now we've got our, you know, kind of show before Christmas. Jeff's on vacation. It's just you and I, Joe. We can we if, can talk if, about anything. If Jeff was here, you just hit on something. We're towards the end of the year. What would Jeff be mentioning that's going to be happening pretty soon in January? It would be earnings. So that would be, you know, it's already earnings season again. And by the way, that's every quarter we have earnings season. So I got to bring that up because Jeff would bring it up. But well, we um, have about three weeks, but we have about three weeks for earnings get out. But I would say, you know, one thing that we would want to point out since we do have four trading days to go in the year is to make sure anyone that has required minimum distributions from an IRA, from a beneficiary IRA, make sure you get those processed before the end of the year because the tax penalty for not taking your distribution is onerous. Uh, so that I guess that would be more of a housekeeping well, reminder. Depending on what investments you have, you may not be able to get it done. If you have mutual funds, ETFs, or stocks, depending on their settlement date, you may be. Well, that's why I'm saying that. That's why. I'm, yeah. Well, the, well, well, that's why I'm talking about it on this weekend show and not next weekend show because next weekend yeah. show the year's done, and so you wouldn't be able to make that trade if you have to raise cash. You know, this is a project that we handle for our clients after Thanksgiving, so we've already taken care of that for our clients. But for folks that are not with Davidson Capital Management that are in the required minimum distribution age range, make sure whoever you're working with, or if you're doing it yourself, making sure you take the proper amount of distributions because Uncle Sam needs to get a hold of those tax dollars. Well, and being at the end of the year, too, if you're charitably inclined and having to be the past finance chair on a church, uh, (laughs) you could also gift. So there's other ways, obviously, to take advantage of the tax code. And it is a a giving season, so keep that in mind, too. If you've got a lot of gains this year, all right. Well, and and you should... You should, you should, funny you should mention that, Joe, because that was a blog, uh, on our website at davidsoncap.com, uh, just a few weeks ago about doing charitable donations for your required minimum distribution. So yes. great timing. Yeah. I mean, and, and there are several strategies you could do to take to minimize your taxes and, and alleviate that from a, a distribution standpoint. Um, but the other thing I did want to point out, and Kyle, we, we I looked at the U.S. bond aggregate, and it was up over five. It's over five percent for the year. Well, it was about a month or two ago where it was actually slightly negative, and. Yeah. We buy bonds, so we've always talked about it. And when Kyle and I are doing a portfolio review, or Jeff, we're talking about buying bonds for safety and income. Well, it's not against the rules of the road when you're investing to actually have bonds that actually can make you money. And I wanted to point Capital that out a little bit. Made a little bit of money uh, on a, a bond ETF trade. And not that we were trying to time it, but – when you have cash and you're as short in duration on your bond funds as you are, as we've been, and had a number like you talked about earlier where we were positive last year, you know, we're going to have another positive number in bonds and it's going to end, you know, it, yes, safety and income is why we use fixed income, but 
some of you that, that have been lucky enough to maybe avoid bond funds that are longer in duration uh, and have been buying in a little bit lately, it's almost a no-brainer. It was like a year, a year and a half or two years ago when we, we shorted the 10-year, essentially, in an exchange-traded fund. You know you can make some money in bonds right now. And, we're, and I don't think we're done yet. But well, no, well, no, but 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 as Jeff has pointed out on past shows, you know, we have seen such a reversal in yields in the fixed income space where buying has just absolutely been flooding in uh, as the Fed has signaled that, you know, they're, they're, they're done raising interest rates and. You know, before we get, I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover it in this segment. We'll have to pick it up on the other side of the break. Is that we had a very important inflation. You know what? Actually, we do have some time, so I'll touch on it right now. Um, a very infor- a very important piece of inflation data that is the PCE, the personal consumption expenditures, which years back was the primary measure of how the Fe- of what the Federal Reserve used in order to determine interest rate policy. Now they have since been focusing more on consumer price index, uh, but we had the the uh, PCE come out on Friday. And it came in below expectations. And so for the, you know, for the month over month, or actually, excuse me, year over year number came in at 3.2%. It was really 3.16 to be exact. And so this was a very favorable number to see the core personal consumption expenditure number come in at 3.16%. Because when you look at the long-term average, the long-term average is 3.24%. Now, this core PCE number was the lowest number that we have seen since March of 2021. And so this is these are the data points that we want to see to show that, for one, the fastest interest rate increasing process the Fed has gone through in 40 years is taking a hold. Is taking a hold. It's bringing inflation down. It's yes, it's moving at more of a glacial pace, but it's moving in the right direction. And we haven't seen an implosion of the employment picture. You know, we still have unemployment below four percent. We've got the U six, the full, or what's called the what I consider the true unemployment number at six point seven percent. It's at one of the historic low numbers for the U six, and the economy is still moving in the right direction. You know, we had the third revision of third GDP this past week, and it came in at four point nine percent. So we have employment strong. The economy is still moving in the right direction. It's still growing at 4.9%, and inflation is coming down. These are all good things. It shows that the Fed's policy has been working. And I would say, Joe, because you know we talked about when is the Fed going to lower interest rates for the first time, and we've all been on record on this show saying we could see it happen You know, at the beginning of the summertime. I think with this core PCE number, you know, if it continues to move in the right direction, I don't know, is March back on the table? I know some analysts are pretty hard and fast set that, hey, March is going to be the first interest rate cut. Uh, I'm still not in this camp, but the number that we got from the core PCE, uh, you know, it's it's making me kind of rethink some things that maybe we could see 
We could see it in March. I'm not going to go on record saying that's when it's going to happen. I still think it's going to be later on into 2024. But I would say that the folks that think the interest rates are going to be cut for the first time in March definitely got some backing. So let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as we were talking about in the last segment, for anyone just tuning in, um, the core PCE, personal consumption expenditures, Came in on Friday, the lowest it has been going back to March of 2021, even below the long-term average. It came in at 3.16%. Long-term average is 3.24%. So as we were saying in the last segment, the Fed's interest rate increasing process that they ended you know, some time back has been working. It has been working, and it hasn't completely deter- hasn't deteriorated the employment picture. And it's kept GDP pumping at 4.9% when we had the third revision of third quarter GDP. So, you know, the big question going into 2024, and we've been on record talking about it on this program, is, you know, when or if, you know, when are we going to see a potential mild recession? Are we going to see one at all? Is the Fed going to be successful with a very bad batting average of bringing the uh, economic plane with a nice, sweet touchdown on the runway. Are we going to have a nice, soft landing? You know, and not to get too deep in the weeds, but an article I was reading this past week, back when we had SIVB bank fail and a couple other super regional banks fail on the east and west coast, the the Fed had set up a basically a program that allowed banks to use the bonds that they had on their bank portfolio to put them up as collateral to get the face value of those dollars from the government to be able to stay solvent to you know kind of avoid any kind of runs on the bank and I've just was reading this past week that they're starting to see more and more banks utilize this this bridge loan lending facility but it's costing these banks quite a bit of money uh, to do this. And in order to use this money for loans, they're going to have to charge higher interest rates to their consumers and to businesses looking to take a loan from them, from the, from the banks that are using longer uh, maturity or longer duration bonds on their portfolio to put them up as collateral. Now, I know that sounds like a mouthful, but really for everyone listening to the program, what this really means is is that for these banks that are utilizing this program, and they're not naming names, but for the banks that are using this program, when they go to give consumers loans, they're going to have to be charging higher interest rates, even as interest rates have been coming down precipitously really since the end of October. And so that in and of itself 
can slow the economy down because consumers, if they go to their bank and they want a car loan and the car loan's 10, 11, 12%, well, they might say, you know what? I don't need a car that bad. Well, you're going to know, you're going to know if your financial institution and its rates higher than another one, how do they manage your bond portfolio? And, and from that perspective, were they longer against the yield curve or were they shorter against the yield curve? Meaning if they had longer term bonds that they're probably going to use that as collateral, like you're talking about. And if they're shorter, then they're not. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Is it, you know, is it a regional bank level or is it a mega bank, as I call them, level? Or where where is that the going to two, be passed on? What the, type of bank? The two big to fail banks. Yep. So well, it, it, and also, and also, if Congress really pushes through this new capital requirements, because that was one thing several weeks ago, which we never talked about on the show, we had some of the big money center bank CEOs testifying in front of Congress, really railing against these new potential requirements of having even more capital reserves held on their books to prevent any type of bank collapse. You know, that was one thing that came out of the financial crisis from 2008, 2009, is that these big money center banks had to have much more capital reserves on their books to prevent them from needing a taxpayer bailout. And so now, under the Biden administration, they're really been pushing for even larger capital requirements, which will, again, only cause loans to be more expensive for the consumer because of these capital requirements. And also, it means that these banks will not be able to loan out as much money. So it's it's just so funny how the Biden administration talks out of both sides of their mouth. Oh, yeah, the Biden economy is doing so fantastic, but we're trying to stuff more regulations down the bank's throats to cause loans to be more expensive and to cause banks to issue less loans. Uh, you know, it, it's again, you can't make this stuff up. You know, and I know I know I talked to dad about whether or not he wanted to be on the show this weekend. He opted not to. I had a feeling we'd probably talking more politics. I should take advantage of the fact that Jeff oh, isn't it, here. Well, your dad to get into great, politics. I know, but we actually we did talk about that last week and maybe throwing a little bit of red meat out there. If your dad was on the show, but your dad, we know how he feels about big banks and from that perspective, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. (laughs) From his times when he was running trust portfolios, some of the largest banks in the state of Texas. Yeah. He, uh, he doesn't have a lot of kind words and this is, you know, back in the early eighties where they went through the whole savings and loan crisis and some of the really horrible loans, uh, that were given out on handshakes, which my dad was in the room as head of the, you know, trust department watching these loans getting passed out to children of board members that know nothing about certain industries they're wanting tens of millions of dollars of loans for. Of course, he had no decision making in the process. He was just sitting there shaking his head like, what are we doing here? Uh, sounds like I need to get my resume together because this bank isn't, uh, isn't long to be open. Well, um, we could go down the route and talk a little bit about we, and we'll probably talk about it at the year-end show about. Well, next year obviously is an election year. I have not been getting a ton of calls. Of course, the market's doing okay. Particularly worried about the election and worried about the market next year. And those well, are the I have that, statistics. Okay, that's I have what statistics. I want to get to. I, yeah, yes. I didn't even write this down. I didn't even tell you about this, Joe, because I, I wrote this down before we started the show. Um, going back in history, going back to 1952, 
during presidential election cycles, the stock market is up on average around 12% going back to 1952. And I'm going to use that statistic as part of my 2024 uh, forecast for the S&P 500. Oh, wait, I want 12% right now. I'm claiming it. I'm going from 8 to 12 You're just going to claim 12 percent Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, this is a preemptive strike with you and Jeff. Preemptive strike? Okay, so you want, yeah, you, you want 12. Right so, Early call. So, 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 you know, bottom line is, is during presidential election cycles, I think for a lot of investors, they think it's always not that great for the market. But this stat goes back to 1952. So we've got a lot, a lot of decades of 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 history of what the market has done. And with an average of 12%, you know, that's a pretty solid return for the S&P 500 on average going into a presidential election year. And, and of course, 2024 is going to be extremely messy uh, when it comes to the presidential election, you know, with the just boneheadedness of the things they did in Colorado, which will get struck down I, I, by I the Supreme Court. Off on that right now, which you know, it's just the, it's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, but again, you know, every state. Here's something crazy, Joe. Do you know right now in the state of Texas, someone has filed lawsuits to remove President Trump from the primary ballot? I don't know if you're aware of that. No, I just I learned that on Thursday. Well, so if, if Colorado gets to the Supreme Court, it'll get there probably relatively quickly, and we know how that'll probably end up. So, yeah, I mean, if it's not overturned nine zero, it'll be eight one. Maybe you know, <laughs> it's I, uh, I, I'm I'm just speechless when it comes to just the the sheer lunacy that we're dealing with. But remember, historically. The stock market prefers chaos in Washington. They prefer gridlock in Washington because it means that they're not passing policies. They're not putting more regulations onto Wall Street. And Wall Street can continue to focus on what it does best and not be inundated with, with you know, policies coming down from Washington. You know, and as I was just mentioning, that potential new capital reserve requirements of banks, you know, it hasn't gotten through Congress. They're still in the research and analysis process of whether or not this is going to be beneficial. But as, as I said earlier, all the big money center banks said, we've got enough capital reserves on the books. We don't need any more. You know, we don't need to make loans more expensive, and we don't need to be issuing less loans. So, you know, we'll see. You know, we'll see. Now, I know we're going to be coming up on break pretty soon, and I know there was a topic that we were going to touch on in this segment, which we'll probably have to carry over uh, to the last segment of this first hour. But I just wanted to kind of prep the listeners of what we're going to be covering. And it's one of our favorite topics for any longtime listener of the Money Wise program, and that is annuities. And, it, Joe, it's from a review that you've recently – actually, you're still in the midst of doing of a prospective client here in San Antonio where there is quite a few annuities that have been bought for one couple – uh, that have bought multiple annuities and has a sizable amount of their net worth tied up in the annuities, which tells me that their sales rep uh, made very sizable commissions 
uh, selling these things. And it's just, it just makes me wonder why annuities are sold so often. Oh, that's right. They pay one of the highest commissions to financial salespeople in the entire country. So that's why they're sold so much. So stay tuned. We'll talk a little bit more about this. Uh, on the other side of the break, you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation, or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, and as I was talking about in the last segment before the commercial break, one of our, I'd say, favorite topics of something to absolutely just bash on, and that is annuities of any shape or form, be it fixed, (laughs) be it variable, or the most egregious, the equity-indexed annuities, um, just just avoid them. Avoid them like the plague. I used to call when I first came on board here, or actually I've called them this for a long time. Equity index annuities, which we're not going to talk about too much today, are like the terrorists of the annuity world. You know what I mean? The they, kid, they, they will kidnap you. They will take you. You'll they're, never see your money moss. again. And there's always a catch to it. So there's a, a moss, if you will, the well, annuity world. But You know what, Joe? Actually, you just you – just, you just jogged my memory talking about that because I've been hearing some commercials being played on CNBC talking about annuities paying between 9 and 11% return. So if any of our listeners has heard this or heard the commercial, let me explain something to you. Annuities can issue what's called a published interest rate. It's basically a teaser rate in order to get you to sign on the line which is dotted. And then after the first 30 days, you will receive a letter from the annuity company saying, well, you signed up for this annuity under our published interest rate of, let's say, 10%. But we have decided it's more prudent for us to reduce this interest rate down to 35 And what do you do as the purchaser of that annuity? You can either decide to swallow your medicine, kick yourself in the head for buying these things, or you surrender it. But when you surrender it, oh, by the way, we're going to hit you with a 10, 11, 12% contingent deferred sales charge in order to get out of it. And now you're trapped. So for any of our listeners, if you've heard a radio show commercial talking about 9, 10, 12, 13% rates of return on annuities or a television commercial, they are issuing what's called the published interest rate, which they can and will change within the first 30 days. And there's a so you have been you, warned. If you buy or you are sold an annuity and you got about 100 yeah, grand. Yeah, sold. 
And that annuity, you could you could pretty much bet your bottom dollar that advisor is probably getting a minimum of five percent or five grand, minimally, especially on those ones that pay a big bump on the on the rates up front. But what what are the? Oh, Joe, you're being hold on, hold on. You're being way too conservative. You're you're talking you're you're talking equity indexed annuities. You're talking ten, eleven, twelve percent. The the easiest way to find out how much the salesperson's making in commissions is get the surrender schedule. And look at what the first year surrender percentage is, and that's most likely the upfront commission that the sales that the salesperson is making. But the bottom line is, you should never even get to the sales meeting. Period. Anyone's pitching you an annuity, whether it's in person or over the phone, you hang up. You hang up. And some of the things you you have to know. We were talking about the review that I'm in the process of doing, and Kyle had one that he was. Uh, uh, looking at also in this particular case, this uh, prospective client uh, had at least what I can see a little more than half of their portfolio in annuities. And this is one of the legacy distribution companies that Kyle and I Edward Jones. To. We'll, we'll just I, go ahead and call it out. It and, was from and, Edward and, Jones. And they may have me other than what I can see, but in this particular situation, one of them and was bought, uh, actually right in the middle of COVID. So when the market is up and the market is down, it's volatile like it was in COVID. That's one of the things that people might go to. And I don't, I'm not saying a specific case, but when there's blood in the streets with the stock market, the annuity wholesalers or salespeople will come out and they will be full force. Full force do extremely well. It's fear selling. It's fear mongering. Um, you know, and the other thing is, in this particular case, a big chunk of it was taxable money, which that's oh. one reason you buy annuities, tax deferral. And in some cases, I'm not going to go there and, and promote it. It could be credit or protected. And these are some of the things that are sold on. But you got to remember, if you have half a million dollars in annuity and you run it up to a million dollars and you need to pull that money out, that first $100,000 that you pull out, it's called last in, first out. And you're taxed at your ordinary income tax bracket. So you're in the 30 or 35% tax bracket. Wham! It's not like taking money out of even a, 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 taking money out of a, a traditional uh, taxable account. Um, from let me and let me let, and let me explain that a little bit better so our listeners can understand. You invest after-tax dollars into an annuity. Your tax treatments when you pull money out is identical as if you're pulling money out of an IRA, meaning it's taxed as ordinary income, as opposed to those taxable dollars being invested in a taxable investment account where you get to have long-term capital gains tax, which if you're under $450,000 modified adjuster gross income married filing jointly, it's at 15%, which is the lowest tax rate in your lifetime from a long-term capital gains tax standpoint. But if that money, that after-tax dollars is coming out of an annuity, it's taxed as ordinary income. And if you're in a 22, 25, 30% tax bracket, the tax treatments are heinous when those dollars are inside of an annuity. Also, they're treated, also they're treated like an IRA. So if you're under the age of 59 and a half, funding it with taxable dollars, you get a 10% early withdrawal penalty on top of paying ordinary income tax on that withdrawal. And I, and I know we're running short on the program, and we, we want to uh, uh, close and wish everybody a Merry Christmas. But I did want to say this. This is why towards the end of the year, you owe it to yourself and this client, you know, obviously is doing the right thing, and they wanted a second opinion and wanted a portfolio review. You owe it to yourself to have a second opinion in your portfolio. 
You know, it's like going to a doctor. I have to have this major procedure. Well, maybe you may need a second second opinion on that, and you owe it to yourself to do that. And what's unique about getting a portfolio review and analysis from Davidson Capital Management is being reviewed by actual money managers, not financial salespeople. You know, we don't sell products. We're completely fee-based. We're registered investment advisors. We are fiduciaries. We don't sell anything. Our clients hire us to manage money on their behalf, having us having the full discretionary control. So it's for long-time listeners to this program, listen to us now, believe us later. You're looking, Joe, right now at a prospective client that's currently at Edward Jones. My newest clients in San Antonio came to us from Edward Jones, and guess what? They had bought two annuities. They had bought two annuities, and luckily they were able to catch it quick enough to be able to liquidate it before the 20-day in the state of Texas free look period was up, and they're so thankful that they did. So we're coming up at the top of the hour break. Before we go to the break, just want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Everyone be safe. Don't eat too much turkey. And with that, we will be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program on the other side of the break. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education. And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular... 
the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry, where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, were registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial to use advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It, it it does, and again, I don't. I mean, I I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401k's and of course and Barack, president yes, obama, president obama came, has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different 
regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place, but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years, so why is it just being intensely studied over just the last couple of months? Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story the no you didn't check the clock the 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 real world example I'm going to give and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly 
between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, or, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting I, I told him, Whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha, got it, understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, at different offices, at different firms, in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client, that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. 
For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial well, advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high visibility advertising to portray themselves as full service investment advisors, it's real easy. Ask your stockbroker if he or she holds a Series 7 securities license. If he or she does, then it's, it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And it's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable, what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interest in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, 
I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, And every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, It's important to understand that 
a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid, let's, let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue-sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even, look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds. From a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how could brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, 
Yeah, I well, no, no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas. And they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners. And I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, Yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. He sounds the op- part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of, don't, don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know i will i do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and financial planning has has really become a a really booming industry and there are designations a certified financial planner which is a very difficult designation to get you have to go through a lot of education a lot of test taking it is not easy to do plus you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation and we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation it is but you have to be very very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products as a way to generate commissions so you have to ask as the prospective client how are you getting compensated are you fee only are you fee based financial planner or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission and you need to ask those questions and if they're not giving you a straight answer that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away you as a prospective client have the right to ask a straight straight up question and get a straight up answer ask them do you have your series seven if they have a series seven pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions and that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard if they say well i have my 65 which is to be a a registered investment advisor representative without a series 7 or a series 6 then they be leaning more on the side of fee only and of course at davidson capital management we are completely fee only registered investment advisors which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients the more money we make for ourselves and vice versa we are not compensated based on commission and being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries we have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our clients interest in front of our own but 
You have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, and you know what we've also talked about on this show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily. But you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath that anything is going to get done. So what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line as dotted, you have to utilize 
all the the research capabilities that are available on the internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker dealers of stockbrokers, and doing what's called a broker check by Googling broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly say, you know, in high <laughs> school, yeah, in high office. school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I found a gentleman here in town, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have. Going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business. Um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Cool. I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. 
th- that's really what they're there for. They, you can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. From my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.